Hi, this is Maury Moreland Morrison here to tell you Geico has more than just great savings. Much more. Yes, while Geico could help you rack up more moolah faster than you can say metamorphosis, they've also been the fastest growing auto insurer for more than 10 years. That's more like it. Furthermore, Geico has fast and friendly claim service. That might seem like an oxymoron, but it's not. All the more reason to say no other auto insurer has more more than Geico. Geico. Expect great savings and a whole lot more. Blog Talk Radio. to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett. I want to welcome our callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. You can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have a wonderful lineup of experts who will share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. All of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. If you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions of the guests. You can also continue this discussion on AfroGenius.com, following the show by adding comments and other resources in the genealogy and history session. Now, how many of you have explored the local history of your community or the community of your ancestors? Well, my guest tonight, Wilhelmina Rhodes Kelly, has done just that. She has so much passion for her beloved community, and she will share with you the African-American's presence in Brooklyn. Wilhelmina is a third-generation Brooklyn native with roots in both Bedford-Stuyvesant and Crown Heights. Her family research led, to her, led her to discover hidden foundations of Brooklyn history and the vanishing roots of central Brooklyn in particular. This moved her to write a book titled Bedford-Stuyvesant in 2007 and a second book titled Crown Heights and Weeksville in 2010. Wilhelmina conducts periodic tours of the 1787 Aramis Hall Academy building in Flatbush and is dedicated to the preservation of historic structures and burial grounds in Brooklyn and Queens. So let me give a warm welcome to Wilhelmina Rhodes Kelly to research at the National Archives and beyond. Wilhelmina, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Bernice. It's very nice to be talking with you. Well, I enjoyed talking with you the other day. You just are so excited about your community, about Brooklyn. And since you are a third-generation native of Brooklyn, please share with us what led you to explore the local history of your community. Well, I have always had an interest in my family history and had been asking questions from when I was about 10 years old. And uh, I grew up in Bed-Stuy and then at about 12 years old moved to Crown Heights. So I wasn't really asking questions about the local history so much as I was asking questions of 
my grandparents who were born in the 1890s and my mom who was born in the 1920s uh, about what it was like to have come from the South. And uh, when I got older, and uh, I guess about 10 years ago, I began to explore my family history and in finding out more about uh, my grandparents and my mother's presence in Brooklyn, I discovered how much local history had been really forgotten and overlooked over the years. So uh, I was just amazed that uh, the history went back to the Revolutionary War, and I began to really search, and there was such a wealth of information, I finally wound up writing a book. Okay, well, why don't you help all of us understand? Just give us a basic overview of Brooklyn as far back as you can describe. Okay, well, um, Brooklyn was basically settled by the Dutch, and that was in the 1630s. Uh, I was always under the impression that uh, Brooklyn and Manhattan were the early settlements and the first settlements by the Dutch, but actually they settled Albany first, and then they settled Brooklyn. And they um, settled Bedford-Stuyvesant, or what was known as the town of Bedford or the village of Bedford, in 1650. So Bedford and the, uh, and the succeeding town of Bedford-Stuyvesant really had its beginning with the Dutch in the 1650s. And then the British took over in the 1664, and then it evolved uh, over the years into a, a brownstone community, but from 1664, when the British took over and when um, they started building the brownstones for which Bedford-Stuyvesant is known, that wasn't until about 1880, 1860. So there was a whole period there where Bedford was basically a, uh, a farming community and supplied food for the local uh, population and for the residents in Manhattan. Hmm. So it's really a Dutch, has a Dutch and an English foundation. Uh-huh. And so from, from what you have uh, learned, when did the African-American presence become evident in, in the Brooklyn communities? Well, the remarkable thing is, and I grew up in Brooklyn, and my mom was born in Brooklyn, and her mother was also born in Brooklyn in uh, 1903, and never really realized that from the very early settlements in the 1600s that there was an African-American presence in Brooklyn. They were in Flatbush. They were in Bedford. They were in uh, what is now East New York. Uh, they certainly were in downtown Brooklyn, near the water, near the earliest settlements right across the river from uh, Manhattan. So um, they were actually a part of uh, the Dutch household. They went to the Dutch churches. They uh, spoke the Dutch language. They adopted uh, the culture of the Dutch, and uh, just continued to live uh, in that Brooklyn community, but largely uh, undocumented because uh, because of slavery. They didn't really name the uh, enslaved uh, population. So uh, they were sort of in the background, but still very much of a presence. Mm -hmm. Now, if you had to describe Brooklyn, uh, mm -hmm. You said town. Were there many townships, or was it just one big town? No, well, actually, there were uh, six original uh, townships or towns that comprise what is today the borough of Brooklyn. There's the uh, the town of Brooklyn. Uh, there was Bushwick. There was New Utrecht. Flatbush. Flatlands, and basically the British settled Gravesend. So we had those six original towns, which uh, grew over time and um, 
finally united into uh, one uh, one borough uh, recognized by as a part of New York City. But they all started out as separate separate townships and then began to uh, work as one community. Mm-hmm. Well, with each township, was there a particular ethnic group associated with each of the six townships? Yes, well, actually, the Dutch, uh, as I had mentioned earlier, uh, were a, a large presence in Brooklyn and in Flatbush and um, in what later became um, that central area of Brooklyn of Crown Heights. And uh, the, the Dutch uh, owned a lot of the farmland that uh, was um, a friable soil that allowed them to plant and have good uh, produce. But they, um, they were pretty much interlinked by the Dutch settlement. They had that Dutch foundation and the Dutch churches were uh, very much part of that early, uh, that early settlement of, um, of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. So, but... Eventually, what other groups moved into the community, or are we not quite there yet? <laughs> no, no. Actually, um, from about uh, you know the early 1600s, when the Dutch moved in, to a very short period uh, in 1664, uh, when the British took over, and it was a very peaceful um, takeover in that. Um, the population uh, was pretty much dissatisfied with um, the uh, uh, Peter Stuyvesant, who was the Dutch governor, and um, were ready for um, were not as resistant to uh, a change uh, under British um, leadership, but. As far as people of color were concerned, it was a major change because the Dutch pretty much uh, embraced or welcomed uh, the participation of blacks in the Dutch culture, and that included not only going to church and having specific pews pretty much in the back, not wholly embraced, but definitely uh, a part of that um of that going to church and the sabbath but um they also the dutch felt that education was important and um educated the enslaved and made it possible for free blacks to also gain an education when the british took over in 1664 that stopped mm-hmm. if you wanted an education under the british you had to pay for it so mm-hmm. Blacks really um, had a little setback uh, with the uh, British, and uh, until you know 1776 and that whole um, Battle of Brooklyn, that first battle in the Revolutionary War, it was pretty much um, you know the British were running things as they saw fit and treating the local population. And that included the Native uh, Europeans and the African Americans as second-class British citizens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there was, you know, that that transition from the Brit the British um, the British pre- presence. Uh, the Germans came in uh, at the time of the Revolutionary War in large numbers because they were part of the British troops in mm-hmm. a deal that the British made with uh, the Germans. So they were Hessian troops. And the Irish came in about in the 1840s and after the emancipation of African Americans um, in New York in 1827. So from uh, 1664 to 1827, um, people of color who were enslaved really were just having to uh, make do until they gained their freedom at that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you mentioned the church. At mm-hmm. that time, you mentioned the Dutch church. But what about, mm-hmm. is there anything you can tell us about the black churches? Since you said well, something about gaining their freedom, and you said 1827. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Well, the um, the blacks continue to uh, pretty much speak the Dutch language, and uh, the British allowed uh, the Dutch to uh, continue their culture um, up until you know the revolution and uh, when the British actually finally wound up leaving. But they were um, the blacks uh, pretty much went to the Dutch to the Dutch churches until um, in the 1700s when the um, the AME Church, um, uh, Bridge Street Church actually was founded in 1766 in downtown Brooklyn, and that's mm-hmm. the um, uh, the AWME Church. So, um, but they pretty much had a Dutch, a Dutch culture and Dutch language, and it wasn't until after uh, leading up to the um, the emancipation uh, in 1827 that uh, African Americans in Brooklyn began to create their own, go to their own churches, found their own churches, created their own uh, schools, their own colored schools, their orphanages, old folks' homes, uh, even their own burial grounds. So Mm -hmm. it was with the emancipation of blacks in 1827 that we began to really recognize and be able to follow the the demographic of blacks in Brooklyn. Hmm. So what was black life like in, in Brooklyn? From that period, uh, say, until after the Civil War? Uh, during the time that the, um, that the British had, uh, were in control, it was basically an agricultural uh, community. Uh, mm-hmm. Brooklyn really didn't start um, developing as a uh, city until... Um, at least the 1850s, and certainly the uh, the development of uh, Bedford Stuyvesant and uh, the urbanization of um, of Bed Stuy uh, began to really take off when the descendants of those early Dutch settlers began to sell their farms, large mm-hmm. farms, and that's where you have those row houses because they they were acres of land that was suddenly available and they were right in a uh in a in a part of Brooklyn that was developing a train system and uh a trolley system and they'd have, you know, access to um a transportation, the water uh and the wells were being eliminated and they were finally putting in the water pipes. So uh, it was the developing community, and at that time, coincidentally, they began to sell off that Dutch descendants started selling off that land. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that really helped in the development of um, of Bed Stuy, but it stayed an agricultural community for many, many years, even okay. after the um, after uh, the British left and uh, uh, America started to develop on its own. Mm-hmm. So let's move into, let's say, the 1870s and beyond. What can mm-hmm. you tell me about the development of the various townships and Bedstive and Wicksville and the other communities? Well, with um, with that 1827 emancipation, uh, and the creation of um, Weeksville, which uh, was uh, is in, in central Brooklyn and it's really now uh, almost part of Crown Heights. Um, they uh, bought uh, James Weeks uh, was one of the earliest purchasers of land, which he sold in lots, and uh, blacks with their uh, with their newfound freedom. Um, functioned as so many other communities did uh, in Brooklyn. And um, it was pretty common for different nationalities Mm -hmm. and ethnic groups to take care of their own 
community members, and that by that I mean they had their own churches. I'm talking the 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 Dutch descendants, the English descendants, the German descendants, even the Swedish uh, descendants. They had and the Jewish. Uh, mm-hmm. Population. They have their their churches and their newspapers and their uh, and their orphanages and everybody pretty much lived within their own uh, community. If you were a mm-hmm. person of color and you moved to uh, and you were in Brooklyn, you pretty much lived in specific areas. Maybe you lived in Williamsburg, or you lived in Bedford, you lived in Weeksville, you lived in downtown Brooklyn, but you didn't just pick up and say, oh, I think I'm going to go live in, um, you know, Gravesend. You weren't going to live there because that wasn't, quote, your community. Mm-hmm. Now, what was the, 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 the race relationships like in the various uh, townships? Well, it was, it was strained. Uh, in that if someone was traveling from um, Bedford and was going down to uh, work uh, in shipping or with boats or stevedore, you were uh, you had to find transportation to get down there, a stagecoach really. Mm-hmm. And um, you didn't always, uh, you weren't always allowed on stagecoach, you had to walk. Mm-hmm. Um Needless to say, you know the the um, the opportunities to uh, really prosper uh, were limited because uh, there was that uh, stigma of having been formerly enslaved or a descendant of someone formerly enslaved. So there was always uh, always that issue. And then when the um, the Irish began to come in uh, in uh, about the 1840s with the uh, potato famine and larger numbers at least, and right up to the uh, Civil War, um, there was competition for the for those jobs that blacks had um, had before, and uh, that was also you know very stressful and. Um, it was uh you know it was difficult trying to um to keep keep the peace because there was just uh, a struggle to try to make ends meet mhm mhm well you know what we're going to do we're going to take a quick break and come back okay. and let's talk about the migration of individuals okay. from the south okay right. okay and that's i okay. have i have a special song to play for you right now you know Wonderful. i i could i couldn't get alicia keys Great. Insurance-minded speeches from GEICO. It's a common expression, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. However, what if the horse's mouth is filled with useful insurance tools? This is the exact case with the GEICO app. Yes, the app is free and therefore a gift horse. However, look inside the app and behold, emergency roadside assistance, digital ID cards, bill pay. Get the GEICO app, look it in the mouth, get amazing services. Thank you. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Wilhelmina Rhodes Kelly, and she is going to now share with us when the migration of individuals from the South became evident in Brooklyn. And Wilhelmina, that was your song. Okay. Well, the migration pretty much started uh, about 1910. Uh, 1900, when there really was a sharp increase of African Americans moving from the South uh, to uh, cities in the North, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and uh, Brooklyn, and uh, Manhattan. 
And uh, it really became evident, and as I had said earlier, that um, you really lived in a certain community. Uh, blacks and other ethnic groups really much stuck together. So if you were going to move to New York, you went to Bedford-Stuyvesant or you went to uh, Williamsburg. And uh, it really became uh, evident and became uh, an issue for people uh, living in uh, Bedford uh, about in the 1920s and the 1930s. And uh, the European uh, population began to... um, take issue and try to keep them out of um, the neighborhood, not uh, allowing them to rent, not allowing them to buy. Um, And it was uh, around that time that uh, my own grandparents, my father's mother and father, uh, came from South Carolina in uh, 1930. They went to Flushing first because it's a Quaker town and – was uh, rumored to be uh, more accepting of people of color, and then eventually moved to uh, Brooklyn. And uh, with the release of the 1940 census, by the way, uh, just this month, uh, I found them in Bedford-Stuyvesant on Putnam Avenue. So mm-hmm. um, they were living uh, in Bed-Stuy in 1940 in a home that they had purchased. But before that... Uh, there was an organization called the Gates Avenue Association, and they were had banded together to try to uh, keep blacks out of the neighborhood. So it was um, Bedford-Stuyvesant in the 30s uh, was not the easiest place to live, and even my grandmother and her sisters and brothers, who I got to know because they all lived in the neighborhood, and we lived within walking distance of each other, and um, they told stories about how they were um, uh, treated unequally, let me say. So uh, it, it wasn't the easiest thing, but um, they may do, and they and they were able to uh, live a, uh, a life that they felt was... Um, sufficient and uh, satisfying for them. Well, we have a question coming out of the chat, and they wanted to know if certain parts of Brooklyn reflect... I went to um, I went to Concord Baptist Church, mm-hmm. and uh, the, uh, the church had different uh, clubs. There was the South Carolina Club, and there was the Virginia Club, and there was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they were from different parts of the South, but they pretty much lived within the same community. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say, no, this section is just specifically uh, South Carolinians or Virginians. No, I wouldn't say that. Mm-hmm. Well, not now, to my knowledge. Not to your knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, but the the club, and I've even observed that in Washington, D.C., at some of the churches they have, like the South Carolina Club and the mm-hmm. Virginia Club and what have you. So that was right. a way of of keeping that, that kinship and that, I guess, that arm back in the South, too. Absolutely. From from what I understood with some of the migratory patterns, you would have one family member go and pretty much stake claim in the area and then bring the others up. Mm-hmm. Was that mm-hmm. a similar type of movement pattern that occurred with your family? Yes, absolutely. My uh, grandmother came up uh to um, Flushing in 1930, and her family followed a year later. And although she had been um, trained as a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse in Barnwell, South Carolina, uh, when she came to New York, in spite of her education, uh, she worked as a maid for a family Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. uh, Flushing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but they did definitely. Someone came first, and she was actually following her sister, who was living in Flushing, and they shared that apartment. And then they moved to Bed Stuy, and they had houses across the street from each other, mm-hmm. on Jefferson Avenue in Bed Stuy. And what was their general reaction to to life in Brooklyn versus, you said, Barnwell, South Carolina? Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, I had asked my grandmother about that when I was a girl and became aware that uh, that uh, the South could be supposedly more discriminatory than in the North, and I asked how she was treated, and she said that um, she was not uh, mistreated because they had uh, been living on that farm, had owned that farm for uh, for generations, and... Um, uh, well, I wouldn't say generations, for decades, and uh, were um, known and respected, and they did not have uh, issues uh, that forced them to have to leave. They were looking for education. They were looking for uh, employment opportunities outside of farming. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, they um they settled into um to Brooklyn and a couple of her sisters had been living already been living in a town uh in uh, Augusta, Georgia, which is right across the Savannah River from Barnwell. So they were already accustomed to living in a uh in a, a city environment. So mm-hmm. they they settled into Brooklyn uh pretty pretty painlessly. Yes. But did you, uh, you know, document their reaction, or do you have any letters that they sent home? Was or was anything ever put in the newspaper, a social report of something that you have uncovered in your research about your family? Well, uh, I did not discover any letters because my grandmother's uh, sisters and brothers, uh, and they were all born between. 1891 and 1899, and uh, I got to know them, and uh, I decided when I was researching the family history that I would document uh, their thoughts and their personalities and little little vignettes about uh, their um, their years and their thoughts uh, uh, in the city, and um, they um, they had their um, you know there was there was a degree of uh discrimination but um not to the point where they felt that they would have to go back home mm-hmm. but i did document their uh, their history and their and their children and uh and what their their thoughts were about um you know living in the north mhm now you mentioned i mean they were there between uh, 1901 and uh, did some of the migration from 1901, let's say 1930, what was life like and how did they compare Brooklyn to Harlem? Well, we were really Brooklynites, and we had, uh, from what I understand and what from what my mother has told me, um, and my grandparents that Brooklyn was considered uh the country, you know, the quiet uh township that people really uh if they were looking for a uh, a lively social life they weren't really going to find it in Brooklyn. And as okay. a matter of fact, uh, people who lived in Harlem and were going to take a trip to Brooklyn said, actually I'm I'm taking a trip to the country and everybody knew that they were going to Brooklyn. Okay. So uh, they were two very distinct uh, uh, communities uh, that uh, they did not have, uh, a, like a Harlem Renaissance that they they in in Bed Stuy, nothing like that, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Was it a little more quiet? Quiet definitely type of socialization. Mhm. Mm-hmm. It was more quiet. It was. Uh, it was. A family uh, community where most people, and I'm talking from my own perspective now, 1950s, 1960s Bed-Stuy, where you knew your neighbors and you knew the the policemen who actually walked the beat, as they used to say. You knew the the, the grocery. You knew the the A and P. Uh, you 
it was a community where uh, you were uh, part of an extended family, and uh, my my grandmother's sisters and brothers all uh, lived around us. So um, you just uh, it was a, it was a happy time to be growing up in Brooklyn in the fifties. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another question coming out of the chat. What was the big draw to New York? I mean, was it the livelihood? Or, or why did people go there? Well, people came to New York for educational opportunity and for employment opportunity. And um, from what I understand, uh, there was also... Uh, a segment of the population that uh, came from the South who uh, of men who were good with uh, and training and feeding and caring for horses. They had racetracks in New York, in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. down at Sheepshead Bay and out in Queens. And uh, the men from uh, South Carolina were known to uh, know how to care for horses. So that's just a small segment, but... Um, it was known that you could get a good education in Brooklyn. And my dad, who was uh, born in 1921, was born in South Carolina, and uh, he went to uh, he went to Boys High. He went to the old PS 44, and then went to Boys High and got a great education. And uh, there was a wonderful opportunity <clears throat> to be well educated through the New York school system at that time. And my mother. Uh, would often mention that, you know, she received an excellent education. So uh, there was that as well. And and, <clears throat> and was this through the this was <clears throat> public education? Yes, this is a public school public. education. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, you able to, um, you know, to to find employment, uh, after being educated through the uh, through the Brooklyn uh, Board of Ed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that definitely made a difference, yeah. Yes, so when did it you, when did you, did. you know, observe the, the migration of the West Indian groups to, to Brooklyn? Well, um, I went to Erasmus Hall and, uh, in the 60s. I graduated in 64, and uh, I went with uh, the students in my class were f- from various ethnic groups. They were Italian and German descend- descendants and uh, basically uh, European, African-American, and some um, from the Caribbean, a small mm-hmm. number. But, yes, they were uh, a part of uh, Erasmus Hall. And sometime between... I would say the uh, late 60s to uh, the late 70s, there was a uh, there was an increase uh, in the number of people from the Caribbean, particularly in Flatbush, where uh, Erasmus Hall is located, and of course was settled by the Dutch. And when the Dutch uh, were living there um, with their slaves, many of those slaves came from the Caribbean. And um, it's almost as if Flatbush has come full circle. They Mm -hmm. were there from the 1650s and uh, then became a very large part demographic of Flatbush uh, in the 70s and 80s. So we really began to see it in, say, the... um, in the late uh late seventies um particularly they moved the the parade the uh Caribbean day parade uh to eastern parkway and there was a tremendous population and uh I believe my mother tells me it used to they used to have a parade west Indian day parade on Bedford avenue and then it became so large that uh it was moved to eastern parkway and it was just a huge affair from about uh the mid 70s and forward up to today. Mhm. Now there was a a point in time and and I'm just going to share with those of you who are listening that Wilhelmina and I were talking and you mentioned something about an orphanage. Can you mm-hmm. say a little bit more about the orphanage cuz uh those who have were not a part of our conversation perhaps don't know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Well, uh, I'm referring specifically uh, to that early Weeksville uh, settlement in 1827, right after the emancipation of uh, blacks in Brooklyn, and uh, at a time when communities really did care for uh, the, the members uh, within their, their radius, and um, Weeksville was no exception. They had uh, their churches, they had their uh, colored school, uh, and they had the Howard Colored Orphanage, which was uh, a, uh, an orphanage that was created for orphans, half-orphans, and even uh, at, at the earliest uh, establishment in the 1860s, 1866-67, after the Civil War, when these children found themselves parentless. And um, in Weeksville, they did have a, um, they did accept uh, children who uh, were not necessarily orphans, but uh, were um, almost like a boarding school. You know, they would accept uh, students whose parents had to work. And mm-hmm. uh, so they were they were boarded. So that was um, you know part of um, the uh, the process of helping the parent to find employment and also caring for uh, for their children. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also had we still had their own burial ground um, um, uh, called the uh, Union uh, uh, Cemetery, and. Um, that was on Eastern Parkway, crossed Eastern Parkway, um, going up uh, Buffalo, and uh, then they had to, uh, when they built Eastern Parkway, they exhumed those graves and uh, and moved them out to um, to Queens. But mm-hmm. um, this was pretty common for uh, the Catholic population, the Swedish population, the Jewish population. You had the Jewish hospitals, and mm-hmm. uh, you had... Uh, uh, old folks homes as well which they're still they're surviving uh, um, what they used to call old folks home uh, on uh, St. John's Place in Brooklyn that started in Weeksville still exists today mm-hmm. it's called a home for, for uh, colored people So um, it was part of that larger community and the need for uh, people of color to uh, care for each other Yes. Well, you know, I'm I'm moving back and forth, but I do have another mm-hmm. question coming out of the chat, uh, okay. the chat room. Is there still an inward migration into Brooklyn? Well, there is a um as far as uh, uh African Americans uh with southern roots, uh there has been a documented return to the south. There is a decreasing uh, uh, population of African Americans in New York because they are returning to um, not perhaps their original townships in the South, but um, they are moving back to what they now call Sunbelt. So uh, there does seem to be um, uh, a diminished. Uh, movement uh, from the south to the north, and it seems to be going the other way now. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just going to move a little further up now and just talk about your genealogical journey in Brooklyn. Have you had any surprises? Have I had any surprises? Yes. Well, actually, uh, what was surprising to me uh, was that the the early settlement of the Dutch included a black population and how there was a presence of African Americans and Caribbean Americans as well in uh in Brooklyn because of the Dutch settlement. That was uh that was amazing to me because uh this is not something that they uh that I was taught in school even though you know my entire education uh was in Brooklyn from you know elementary school right through uh college and um that was uh that was surprising um 
the early uh, emphasis of education uh, by the Dutch and um, the opportunity to learn to read and write that the Dutch felt was an entitlement uh, was surprising. Mm-hmm. And um, I was, um, I did not realize that uh, there had been a, um, a draft riot in, uh, connected with drafts for the Civil War, and that um, with this race riot, uh, the black population of, uh, the, uh, of Manhattan uh, left a good portion of it and moved to Weeksville, and that accounted yeah. for a spike in that population. There used to be a black orphanage on 42nd Street and 5th Avenue across the street from today's uh, main branch, the New York Public Library, and uh, it was burned to the ground in a race riot, and uh, many of those blacks that were living in that area and parts of Manhattan um, got in their got in, took the ferries, got in their boats, and went over to Weeksville and uh, moved there. So there was that spike in in, um, in the black population because mm-hmm. of uh, this incident. Mm-hmm. So so Weeksville was a very protective environment and a safe place for people to, to go because yes. of the, the race riot? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, they knew that this was a... Uh, there were numbers of uh, blacks that were living together, and the town was um, uh, recognized um, as a secure community and um, wound up settling there. Even my, my mother's father, who's uh, uh, from Virginia, uh, when I was doing the family research and looked for him, uh, John Hamlin, Reverend John Hamlin, um, I find him on Bergen Street, right in the heart of Weeksville. So when he came up from Virginia with a with a stop in Red Bank, New Jersey, uh, he uh, he settled in Weeksville, and that mm-hmm. was you know, 1910. Mm-hmm. So uh, this was the this was where people felt evidently felt secure. Yeah, and, and there was comfort. It was that mm-hmm. sounds like there was a great deal of comfort. Well, there's Absolutely. another question coming out of the chat, and it what mm-hmm. what would you do differently now that you've gotten a bit further along with your research, and what tips can you give to others who are researching their migrating ancestors? Mm, what what would I do differently? Mm-hmm. I would I would make it a point to tape uh, the my grandmother's sisters and brothers, and uh, anyone that I was asking those um, idle questions at the time when I was, you know, 10 and 12, and uh, when I realized that um, this this is valuable information, that oral history uh, that they share with you uh, may not necessarily be 100% accurate, but it has that kernel of truth. Yeah. That uh, you can you hear it, but you don't you can't play it back, and you you don't remember everything that someone tells you. And mm-hmm. I would have I I would have taped them. I would have spent more time taping. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as they say, when you know when an older person passes away, a library closes. Yeah. They have such experiences, and when they're gone, that book is closed. That book is closed. You're so right about that. Mm-hmm. Any anything any other tips? I would on my journey I I would suggest uh, that people realize that this is not something that you just uh you research and you say, Okay, I'm done. I, I have my grandparents and I have my great grandparents and that's it. There's always something more to know. There's um you can never assume that more family information um, does not exist. Uh, there is such a wealth of uh, documented information that is available to people of color that I think uh, that we overlook. Um, the draft records and uh, newspaper articles, particularly the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, 
which is online and uh, was put together by the Brooklyn Public Library and is is run by them. Uh, check check the paper. Look at your local uh, your local history. Uh, you'd be surprised at uh, how much uh, by going local. Uh, you can uh, discover more information of that uncle that died young and uh, that missing uh, cousin that uh, was adopted by uh, the wife's side of the family and then moved to another part of the country. So um, the idea is to be patient but to continue to search. Uh, When I was uh, researching my mom's, uh, side of the family uh, out of Virginia, uh, I had a certain element of oral history and was able to uh, research uh, her family based on just what she had, the few bits of information she had been told by her father, who was not a big uh, a conversationalist with his children, and was able to get back not only to uh, our Revolutionary War patriot, but also that family line that went back to John Rolfe and Pocahontas and, from 1607, and I would have never, ever believed that that would be the case. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there is there are many hundreds and hundreds of people who descend from those early years in Virginia, from John Rolfe and Pocahontas, and you have to start the journey, be patient, and just continue to uh, to work at it. And uh, more information. It's it's just a um, it's a quest, and it's also uh, a gift in that information will sometimes come to you, mm-hmm. uh, and you're not you're not necessarily searching for it. So you know you keep your uh, keep your uh, your ears open and uh, just be receptive to new information because there's so much to know. Even when you think you're done, there's still a lot to know. Absolutely. Well, I know that you, you've uh, actually written two books, and so what resources did you use to actually put together your two books? Well, uh, I, in writing the, uh, the books on uh, Bed-Stuy and uh, Crown Heights, um I used um the Brooklyn Public Library photo archive uh the early books and their excellent records and I'm fortunate in that regard there are many records that document um events in Brooklyn and having once been a city of its own uh there is uh lots of information famous city by the way uh there's mm-hmm. lots of information um uh land records um um a wealth of information uh was available for uh crown heights and Bed-Stuy, including that uh, um uh brooklyn daily eagle um uh resource um as far as my uh the the family histories are concerned uh Definitely the uh, the census reports and uh, and oral history that was mm-hmm. uh, that was important in documenting the uh, that family uh, element as well. Mm-hmm. Now, were any of the churches uh, able to provide you with information about your family? You said your father, your grandfather was a minister. Yes, my grandfather was a uh, minister of Mount Lebanon Baptist Church. And uh, he, um, the churches have uh, great uh, records that they um, were in their anniversary uh, volumes and are able to provide a good bit of information. But in some cases, unfortunately, uh, uh, some of that information can be missing because. Um, the um you'll have a flood you'll have a fire uh someone uh they'll keep the records in their home and yes. um and it can be lost that way and when someone uh passes away the family inadvertently uh throws out uh the records and that includes 
family members with old photos and diaries and, uh, you know, even Bibles. They Mm -hmm. put it out on the porch and it gets rained on, those kinds of things. Right. But but the churches absolutely were, and, and historical societies and genealogical societies. They're all very helpful um, and um, just can give you tips on uh, where to search and how to look. Mm-hmm. Large community of researchers uh, in Brooklyn that yes, you are well, aware there, of. There are, there are researchers actually across the country, and uh, there are uh, a number of researchers in Brooklyn, and uh, actually my sister, uh, Linda Jones, and I, uh, run a, uh, a genealogy workshop uh, once a month uh, through the Brooklyn Public Library uh, at um, Macon, um, the Macon branch on Lewis Avenue, and uh, it's a, a part of the African Atlantic Genealogy Society, which was founded by Julius and Joyce Pierce uh, years ago in, uh, in Long Island. So uh, we have a hands-on uh, workshop where we help people to search and um, help them to get started and help them to solve any issues they may have. Mm-hmm. Well, you have really provided us with some very interesting information concerning your love of your local community in Brooklyn. So do you Thank have you. any closing remarks or words of wisdom to offer others before we close out the show tonight? I would say if you have the slightest inclination to search your family history, uh, begin the journey. Don't hesitate because it's not something that happens overnight. Uh, That little um, uh, prompt uh, that you're feeling to look into your family history is a clue that, uh, that you should you should start because uh, there is such great information available to you, and uh, you it will be time well spent. Right, and, and it is energizing and empowering. Absolutely, absolutely. To absolutely. know your roots and to know where you know who you are. I wish I had known uh, when I was in high school. Uh, what I um, then, what I know now, just a completely sense of a different sense of history, and who I am, and uh, our contribution to the American fabric. That's right, and you know what? It's better late than never. Yes, this is so true. It's so That's true. So true. Okay, well, thank you. So, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history family records, research at the National Archives, and beyond. Now, we can continue this discussion concerning the local history of Brooklyn communities on AfroGenius.com. If you found some resources and you'd like to share that with everyone, again, go to AfroGenius.com in the Genealogy and History Forum, and that's where we will continue this discussion about local history. So thank you for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. And remember, your ancestors left footprints. So I'm going to close out. Hi, this is Maury Moreland Morrison here to tell you Geico has more than just great savings, much more. Geico's been around for more than 75 years, back when they were using Morse code. Sorry, that's just my sense of humor. What's more, with Geico, you get 24-7 access to licensed agents on the app, online, or over the phone, so you can talk to them at night or in the morning. So forevermore, just know that no other auto insurer has more more than Geico. More power to you. Geico. Expect great savings and a whole lot more. Summer in North. Napa know-how. Napa.
a guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolored paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. Yo, everybody get up. Everybody get up. Everybody needs to understand that I'm more than simply a hype man for this rap group. Just like Geico is more than just a company that can save you money. Geico also has fast and friendly claim service so they can help you when you need it most. And while I do love being a hype man, I also love reading for children's audiobooks. Like little Bo Peep, she lost the sheep and she don't know where to find them. Yo, Geico. Expect great savings and a whole lot more.